This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. I'm wearing this morning a prayer shawl, which was knitted for me in October when I broke my shoulder. So thank you, uh, Joanne Flattery, I think, uh, and for the ministry that you all engage in of healing prayer. And uh, it works. Thank you. Well, it's been a heck of a year, right? We have a lot to pray for. We have a lot to be thankful for. The New York Times this morning had a really wonderful article about people who have risked their lives this year for others. If you can pull it up, I recommend it. Because we had floods and hurricanes and storms and a lot of people went out of their way all around the globe to rescue and save and protect others including in the bronze this week, a man who lost his life. But four people were saved. So we have a lot to be thankful for as we come to this time of prayer. It's also true at the end of the year, we think about people we have loved and lost this year. And this morning, I really want to honor Um, a young woman, Erica Garner, who um, is a name you might remember because her father, Eric Garner, uh, died at the choking hands of the police in New York when he was arrested. Uh, Even though he had so much asthma, he couldn't breathe. And his daughter, uh, at 26 years, 25 at that point also began entering the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, has been an outspoken advocate um, for those who have suffered unduly um, prejudicially from police brutality. And she also having asthma died this morning at 27. So we have lost a bright light. There are others, I'm sure, that are on your hearts that you have lost this year or people you know who are suffering, so lift them up in prayer. And I will guide us in different categories of prayer, and then you can say after um, we lift you up into the light. All right, let's continue in prayer. Almighty God, in this season of light and the darkness, we recall this day those who bring light into our days. We lift them up into the light. Will you say that with me? We lift them up into the light. And we pray for those who are suffering today from illness or disease 
suffering of soul or spirit or body. So join with me. We lift them up to the light. For those who are wandering and seeking a homeland and whose homes have not been safe for them from war or domestic violence or homelessness and poverty, pray with me. We lift them up into the light. For those in life transition and for those in the process of aging, that their wisdom and their voices of truth may be heard among all people. Pray with me, we lift them up into the light. And we dare, loving God, to enter this space in prayer for our own needs this day. In thanks that you love us and are already attending to our own needs for healing and hope and justice-seeking power, that you already want these things for us, we thank you that you allow us the humility to pray for our own needs today. And we lift ourselves up into the light. As we offer the prayer which Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Abba in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Toward the end of the service today, I said it was sort of like being a substitute teacher. I'm throwing in a different hymn. Just so you know, ahead of time, we're going to be singing Go Tell It on the Mountain instead of There's a Song in the Air. They're both very nice, but I want us to be a little peppy at the end. Okay? Do not throw spitballs. Or act out. Well, it's an honor to be with you. When um, Pastor Rishenda uh, gave me a call and asked me to preach this Sunday, I considered my totally busy schedule and said yes. A friend asked me why I had crammed one more thing into this time when I was closing down my private um, practice office, moved out of it yesterday. I'm entertaining and enjoying friends for the holidays, finishing up a home remodeling project, and the toilet's too big for the space. Anyway, uh, first world problem, they say. 
and it is. The greatest themes in Christianity are contained here in the birth narratives. And the temptation is, since I didn't preach for you all Advent, was to cram it all in today, which I have stopped doing. These stories are so pivotal to my faith, they have more power for me in some ways than the resurrection narrative. That light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. And maybe every year, but especially this year, we need these stories of God's inbreaking good news. We need to know that God is not turned away, that God is with families who have no shelter, babies born into poverty, refugees fleeing violence, deportees, and mothers weeping for slain sons. It is all here in the Christmas story. And we hear about poor shepherds who get it right, wise ones who get lost, <laughs> and are perhaps still wandering. Yeah. Uh, but they unwittingly provide too much information to King Herod, and oh God, what are we to say about King Herod without weeping? Matthew's gospel story is all about Herod's jealousy and ego, having amassed great power. This hell-bent Herod's jealousy means he protects his own interests, he slaughters the innocent, he turns away as weeping parents bury their dead, and these texts are ancient narratives. But do they speak to you? in the dark of winter. Where are you? The nativity stories resonate deeply. Scholar Matthew Fox, last year on Christmas, he's also what I call a theological rebel, he wrote this. The nativity stories are immensely powerful. The artists who composed them knew what they were doing because they catch our deep imagination and the yearning of our heart for justice for the poor. And in doing so, they offer what is essential to the Christ path, that good news will come to the poorest, and that four-legged ones, the ox and the sheep, will find themselves in the most privileged places, and that divinity is a young child, not an older bearded fellow. Well, so I'm going to jump us into the narratives of this rough time period. Once the angels are quiet, the shepherds go home, and before Mary has even gotten used to the whole new mother thing, and she and Joseph have lost sleep, and she's not sure about lactation. Can you say that in church? <laughs> Is that okay? Before they're really settled in to knowing how to parent at all, Jesus' life is threatened. The baby isn't safe in the stable. Ironically, on Christmas Day when I was in Seattle, I read this little story about a woman trying to get the baby Jesus to safety. It says, in West Bend, Wisconsin, 
Police say an officer spotted a 21-year-old woman walking early Sunday with the figurine of the baby Jesus. When the officer attempted to stop and speak with her, she ran. The figurine she was carrying was from Old Settlers Park in West Bend, a town of about 30,000 people north of Milwaukee. The police officer said that she had absconded with a replacement baby because the one had, who had been there previously was damaged earlier in the week on December 17th. Well, it is not safe to be the baby Jesus, even on Christmas Day. She was arrested, of course, but I'm sort of sad about that. She may have had the right thing in mind all along. Maybe an angel came to her in a dream and told her to take him to Egypt. I don't know. That's how crazy the scripture is, right? So Matthew and Luke are telling elaborate stories about the days following Jesus' birth, and they're both really, really different. In Matthew's gospel, the baby's life is in peril, and we have plot twists and dreams and escapes into the night. And the ones we call wise men, either the kings or astrologers, travel great distances to see Jesus. And uncertain where to find him, where are you going to go? Washington, D.C., right? You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to go to the place of power. That's where you expect a king to be born, right? Well, they find audience with Herod. I don't know how they get in to see him. It's like getting an audience with the Pope. You know, you get about five minutes if you're really lucky. Well, it turns out King Herod is not so great about this news. He calls in a few people, you know the story, uh, to try to get some more information. And the priests and the scribes are consulted, and they say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod interrogates everyone about Jesus' birth and sneers out this lie that he wants to go there too and to worship. Well, the star luckily gets those lost wise guys to Bethlehem. And I'm so curious about their humble birth experience because these high-status fellows kneel down when they experience that a baby is God. Well, you know what happens next. Herod is infuriated and kills all the children in and around Bethlehem two years or younger. And what I hadn't really understood before, but it seems clear to me in rereading, it's that Herod's genocide is trying to wipe out the future of Hebrew children. And we're still in a world of genocide. So say it with me, right? Jesus' birth was only the beginning. Jesus' birth was only the beginning. Where patriarchs and people in power world over care so little for children and families, where girls are stolen and traded as sex slaves and children's health care is no longer guaranteed, and children in war-torn countries are starving, and most of the people in our own nation who are below the poverty level are children. 
Mary and Joseph are so far from home, and they are rightfully anxious about their baby's safety, and our baby is vulnerable. What does it mean for us to have a vulnerable God? They flee to Egypt to keep him safe. And we climb inside the refugee experience here because God becomes a vulnerable child protected only by angels and dreams. And we're standing with that lady in West Bend, Wisconsin, overlooking that manger and that baby. We're thinking about if we better get him to Egypt. In a cold December during my junior year in college, I was finishing up papers for my fall term and the phone rang, it was my mother. She called to talk to me about some complications that had arisen regarding the holiday break. And thank you, some of you have read a bit about this in my memoir. My sister had given birth to a beautiful daughter named Stephanie, but it wasn't going well. Stephanie had so many developmental disabilities that they didn't expect her to live many months into the new year. Worse still, my sister's husband was unable to cope with the situation, and he had served in Vietnam. He felt responsible for the birth defects, which were likely the result of Agent Orange exposure. He had left my sister a few weeks after Stephanie's birth. And she and her five-year-old son had moved back home, and he was in my room. <laughs> so my mother didn't know how to make room for all of us in the inn. And the baby wasn't thriving. Honey, Mom said, is it possible you could stay at school for the break and not come home for Christmas? I pleaded, this violated every rule about home, the way your parents are supposed to take you in. But my mother finally said she didn't want me to see the baby. She's afraid I'd be so scared I would never give birth to a baby myself. And it was hard on them. But in the end, she said, I could take the Greyhound home for Christmas in the following week. And we spent the 12 days of Christmas walking and comforting Stephanie, a very sick baby. And it's hard sometimes to see the light shining in the darkness, and yet this care for her became our hallelujah. And we all felt the presence of angels that year because she was God. And God was there to accompany us as we were with her in her suffering. Hasn't God been with you in a time of suffering? Where's the amen people today? Okay. God's incarnation is a crying infant. Well, we've got to turn to Luke's gospel. You heard it beautifully read this morning. There's no infant slaughter there. This is the more hopeful gospel. There's good news here. There's no flight to Egypt, and thank God there is no Herod here. 
Luke just takes his clues from the singing of angels, and just eight days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph and the baby show up at temple because they have to sacrifice doves and pigeons and record Jesus' name in the church rolls. His name is recorded in the temple membership roster, and he's initiated into the Hebrew faith because, say it with me now, the birth was only the beginning. And we don't have three wise men here. We have one wise man and one wise woman. Now, Anna's 84 at least, unless we count the seven years differently, and then she could be seven plus 84, but... Obviously, she's old enough, and in that time, she's really old, right? She's old enough that her gout hurts her when she gets up in the morning. And her bones crack, and she is frail. And she feels her upcoming death in her bones. And yet every day, she lights a candle and offers incense and hears the Torah read and waits for Jesus. She lives on a promise and a prayer, as do we. Now, wise old Simeon is the first to really describe in all of the scripture stories what's going to happen for Jesus and for his mother, Mary, who will suffer as she watches the life of her son unfold. You will not see death, this spirit had told Simeon, until you have seen the Messiah. And some of us who have experienced that Christ light in our lives may still be waiting for one more glimpse. Are some of you waiting? Would you like another glimpse? Mary is holding Jesus over her shoulder, but the minute the old man draws near, we can picture that baby just reaching out for him. And Simeon, just with those old and age-spotted hands, taking him, and he's looking in the baby's eyes, and he knows that he is seeing God. By the way, in the Hebrew tradition, nobody ever sees God. Not by the face. They get to see his backside. That's all. Nobody gets to see the front side. In all of those Hebrew traditions, maybe they see a fiery pillar or um, burning bush. But this old man with that wrinkly smile and Anna standing next to him, they get a good look at God's dimply face. And he holds the baby and prays and proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited light and a sign for all people. I think they are weeping, having waited their whole lives for that moment. God becoming human means being human in our arms, in our lives, 
in church where we, like Anna and Simeon, still come to wait for a little bitty baby born in Bethlehem to be the light for our darkness. You know when babies cry, I know our baby today just stepped out with his mom, but when babies cry, the parents think that cry is really super loud, right? You remember that? When you take your baby out in public, you're like, whoa, it sounds like a megaphone, right? But to everybody else, it's just this little soft, and everybody just loves that little sound. Well, when people say, why do you sit in the back in the church? Well, I love sitting next to Marjorie, but I also sit in the back of the church um, because that's where you can usually see the children. And more of our children sit in the back. Now, one day, and I think this was you, JD, right? One day, that baby was up over his shoulder, and it didn't matter to me what else happened in church that day, right? <laughs> Don't tell Rashinda, but I didn't listen to a word she had to say. <laughs> Probably didn't hear the choir. You know, I was just fixated on that little baby, and he was actually kind of looking at me. When that happens in the brain, you get this rush of oxytocin, actually. I've studied this, right? And it's just great. It's much better than any other dopamine-enhancing experience. And that's why I sit in the back. Because like the gospel writers, I am fixated on the idea that Jesus is a baby, that God is a baby. And I get so tired of how we call God all these older male things, right? God is Lord and King. And I'm getting a little kind of tired of patriarchy and lords and kings. So I'm drawn to the idea that a vulnerable child is the incarnation of God. And what that means for us as protectors of the innocence in the world is very, very profound and something that should take us into the new year. If we say, what's our new year's goal? I would say, how will you protect the children of the earth? Because Jesus' birth was only the beginning. And I know, and you know too, that when light shines in that baby, Captives are set free, and the sick become well, and people in power, as Mary says, are brought low. And those who are low are lifted up. And I know that very personally because of that one Christmas with Stephanie and my family. When Jesus walked right next to my father, or maybe was held by my father, as he paced back and forth in our living room with Stephanie until her crying stopped. And God was in her eyes. And we are privileged to be witnesses to Christ's light Say it with me now, because the birth was only the beginning. Let's be in a moment of prayer.